You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Mike Smart. Mike has over 25 years in the information technology and software industry in several executive positions with responsibilities for product management, product marketing, development, and operations for NASDAQ trade companies in the internet and software industries. On today's show, we talk about what is product assessment and where do companies struggle? How has launching a product changed over the years in Silicon Valley? How does one look at bringing life back to an existing product? And what should the scale strategy be? This and much more in this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, before we start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, I got to thank Kimon, who made the introduction. I've known him, well, from jujitsu. He used to beat me up and back in the day, well, actually, just full disclosures, if you see a picture of him, he's about twice my size. So it's okay that... Yeah. Sean, I would, if I were you, I'd find a smaller jujitsu partner. Exactly. Kimon's a big guy. He's a big guy. He's a big guy. So, but I got to say, thank you for this introduction. This, today's episode is going to be fantastic. Now, Mike, I've done a little bit of research on your career. We had a great conversation before this, but for our audience, can you tell them a little bit about your career up until this point? Sure. So my background in technology spans more than about 25 years. And I've had a number of different roles. And it's probably how I got to this stage is changing jobs, willing to take risk in positions inside large corporations. I started out sales role, accelerated, moved to a sales leadership role. And somewhere around the midway through that cycle, I got a bug to start doing product management. I was working for a mid-market software company. It became a personal passion. I moved over as I said, I flipped to the dark side. That was the joke inside the company at the time. The name of the company was TCSI, and they made network management infrastructure tools for the telecom industry. And I got excited by the technology. I felt the calling and I made a move. And I've spent my career that way. I worked for digital equipment in a role. I would always change jobs and move around. I worked for Tandem Computers, same thing. I would take the risky job. And I found that has been probably the biggest driver for me is willing to take risk controlled risk, of course, and willing to stay in a learning mode and willing to set back and not know everything and then power over and learn what I can learn. And that's probably made a difference. It's led me to be able to lead and run large organizations inside companies, mid-market mostly. I've worked at a company called Go Remote, which got acquired by iPass, and I ran their development and product management team for five years on a global basis. So I've had a lot of experience just from taking that notion of being able to be motivated, to really focus and take the risk involved. Okay. So tell us a little bit about kind of what your focus is. I know that we are going to dive into launching products and that, but even before that, tell us about the product life cycle. So if I talk about the product life cycle, I think you have to kind of put it in a point of view that says it is that thing which starts and everybody rattles this off really quickly. They talk about the software cycle, the software development cycle. And I put the product life cycle in a notion. It is certainly some of those development, design, build, launch activities, but it's overlaid and it's uplifted by adding all of the business elements, all of the things that determine if you're doing software development, you're doing SaaS development for a business enterprise. 
that the product lifecycle includes all of these technical things that everybody loves to talk about, but you have to overlay all of the business elements on top of it. So that includes starting with a why. What problem are you trying to solve? And identifying that specifically and knowing what it is. And then, is this problem urgent, pervasive? And there's a willingness for the buyers to pay to solve it. So all the tech in the world, if we don't answer those first three questions, what problem are we solving and is it urgent, pervasive and willing and there's a willingness to pay to solve it, then the tech is just tech, right? And so that cycle starts there and these things have to converge and have to converge really early inside the cycle. I would say before a developer or for a development team to ever write a line of code, we should know the answer to those first three questions I asked problem we're solving? Is it urgent, pervasive, and is there a willingness to pay to solve it? And people get hung up on, well, how do I find that? And I say, this is a learning process. It's a progression. And the answers will change based on where we are in our, the organization, the company is in its cycle. If you're an entrepreneur and you're an early stage company, your answers to those questions are going to be probably more anecdotal than scientific. They're probably going to be experiential, meaning I know this is a problem in the space because I did that job for five years and me and the other colleagues I had in the workplace were frustrated, angry, and turned off by the available tools to us. That's great. That works. If you're a more mature organization, you need to lean more into data and more scale types of types of answers. So the answer there is there are some percentage of our customer base that have this problem. And we have learned from interacting with them that if we solve this problem, they're willing to pay X dollars or Y dollars, or at least it has this impact to the organization, which has some bottom line impact. And we can extract from that an ability to set a price and know the scale to the problem that's going to be solved. There's a lot there. I know. I'm sorry. I just get... I get on a roll with this stuff, and even after 10, 15 years of doing it, I still get excited about it. It's the core of it is problem solving. Well, let's, let's dissect every part of that. Okay, at the very beginning, those four things that need to be answered. Should a startup even start without knowing those four? Because how many startups are there out there that's just someone that has an idea? That's a great question. I like it because I don't do a lot of work with startups, but right now I'm on a board of advisors for an early stage company. And I've done mentoring and coaching and advisory work for startups through incubators in the past. And one of the things that I always enjoy watching are entrepreneurs come together and figure out the problem. And again, I said before, at that stage, if it's an experiential identification of the problem, that's fabulous. I work with a company, and I won't mention their name, but they're still in business. They're still in the early stages. And the founder, they were trying to solve a problem for the housing market. And the founder was deeply passionate about it. I mean, like this was his sort of part of his soul in terms of looking at this. And what he wanted to create was an exchange between people who were looking for housing people who had housing to offer. And then the overlay on this, the business model was, and because these people are sort of underserved, meaning they are an affordability complex situation, that municipalities had a vested interest in making sure these connections happen. So he figured out a business model. He had figured this out and he had an experiential understanding that there was value for solving this problem. There was value for obviously those people who were seeking housing, those people who had units available to offer, and obviously programmatically for municipalities who were tightly managed and measured by how they meet that affordability mix and do all of those things that a city is supposed to do to make sure that people have good shelter, there was an affordability. He didn't have a whole host of 
detailed data and analysis. But what he had is this understanding of the connecting parts of these things and what it meant to each individual component. Some obvious, some not so obvious, some inferred, some direct. And that's good enough to start figuring out how do we solve the problem and for whom. But there was that question that was brought up. Will someone pay for this? So that so, I didn't hear answered. So there. so that's I'm dealing with somebody who pays attention to detail. This is great. So in that process, and I use that as a business model because it's a complex one and it's sort of a B to C sort of example. The payer would be one of two people. And we and I worked with him and we identified this. The city had invested interest in paying because they had a mission, a long sweeping mission for providing affordable housing, right? They also had a funding source. It's called the federal government, tax dollars, right? The people who were doing development of affordable housing builders, home builders, had an incentive for solving it because they were building housing, we'll call it value minus subtract value from market. I could build a dwelling project for we'll call it 100, and I'm offering it specifically in this context for 85. What does that builder want to know? One, am I going to have high occupancy? Two, is there a steady stream of payments coming for filling those occupants? And so those two people were the payer. So figuring out the buyer in that particular situation was understanding the relationship with the flow of funds. The line I use is follow the money, right? So once we understood it, and obviously the renter or home buyer, whichever one it would fall into that, had an incentive as well. And they would pay a nominal fee for access to the information by virtue of the fact that the alternative was for them to do this manually and physically. And I don't know if you can go back in your history when you were a young man and you're stepping away from home for the first time, you had to go find an apartment to live in. It's a tedious, it's an arcane process, right? Get in your car and you drive around. Well, we're at the internet age. So now you can get on a Google map and see things, but you don't usually elect to sign a lease on something until you've inspected it. So we understand that those dynamics are at play. So it means that in proportion to value and in proportion to business model in that example, everyone was willing to pay. Okay. Okay. Then where was the founder struggling in assessing this product? So in that particular instance, he didn't have a problem with that. But we shift to another part of this back to your question about the product lifecycle, which is something that's more recently, I think, obvious to us. The emphasis, I'm going to date myself. I've been in this business a long time. I come from the era of green screens. If anybody wants to get a laugh out of that, go for it. And I've grown up in this industry when we've moved to where we are. And one thing that we've come to understand is that building what used to be called complex or hard software is a lot easier than it was five years ago or 10 years ago. And we know that by several things. The first thing we know is if you look into any sector of the technology industry, there are multiple offerings for any solution you want to look for. There are some close to, and I, the last time I heard a number from this was probably two years ago. Someone told me who worked for Microsoft, and she was part of the product management team of Dynamics, which is a CRM tool. She said she probably had somewhere between 70 to 80 competitors in the CRM space alone. That means there are 70 alternatives for anybody who wants to do customer relationship management. Which one do you pick? It depends on a lot of things. And if you go look at the MarTech stack website, you'll see that he has a running count of some 11,000, I don't know, it's probably 15,000 different MarTech technology solutions. So there's an abundance of options for people. So what that means is if you're going to build something for someone, you better have a really good idea about how you're going to get it to them and how you're going to market it to them and how you're going to differentiate yourself. So that's now a critical element 
of the product lifecycle. And again, going back to solving the question about what is the problem we're trying to solve, urgent, pervasive willingness to pay. And now the continuation of that heuristic is, and how are we going to offer it to the buyer so that it is easy for them to consume and get value from? Well, with that, how do we do it? How do we launch this product? So I think that the notion, let's do a retrospective look back in history. It used to be that if we build it, cliche from the movie, if we build it, they will come. If we built this technology and we built it well enough and we packaged it enough and we put it in a place where people could find it, that we would attract a certain number of users. And today, the standard user, the standard buyer is overwhelmed by this abundance of choice. So understanding that what that now requires is an understanding of who are we building for? In other words, what is our persona? And that's a term that's used a lot in the industry. Some cases, I think it's overused. And who are these personas? And depending upon the type of solution you're providing, the persona is divided into a user persona and a buyer persona. They may be different. They may be the same. And it's up to you, the entrepreneur, the mid-stage company to figure out, are my personas truly different? And are there more than one or two? There may be more than two. And so who are we now building our solution for? And what is their best method of acquiring new technologies? What is their best method of acquiring new tools and capabilities? And then why would they switch to our product? And that leads us to an understanding of something, a concept I like to use, which is jobs to be done. What does that mean? The idea of doing jobs to be done means the better I understand what problem somebody's trying to solve. I'll give you an example. This weekend, you and I were talking before we started, but we're going to do for the weekend. I've got a list of chores at home, all right? One of them may require my better half asking me to hang up some pictures. I haven't hung pictures in a while. I know that my drill is busted, so I'm going to have to go to Home Depot, which is a big deterrent to me doing this this weekend. I'm going to have to go to Home Depot and figure out what kind of drill I want. The designer of a drill has a large set of users and potential users. There's the professional contractor who's up on a scaffold all day long using this thing at high speeds and has skill sets way beyond what most people have. And then there's the casual user, the DIY guy like me, who hasn't picked up a drill in three months. And I might remember how to use it, and I might not. And all I want to do is drill a hole to hang a picture. That's my job. In fact, if I could get the hole without the drill, I would do that. So if you're designing a drill for the DIY guy who only wants a hole, that's a completely different design idea, design construct, and design thought process than designing it for the licensed contractor who makes his living and burns through probably three or four drills a year, right? So that's the first thing is talking about getting to go to market is understanding who is the market? Who specifically are we targeting? And what do we build and design for them? And just like in the world of drills in the consumer market, you and I have no patience for going into a store and being overwhelmed with choice, trying to decide which one do we want because there's just too many choices. So I'm not going to go buy the Ryobi because it costs $400 and it's got this weird attachment, which is all about compression. 
and it has electrical. I don't want that. And I'm not going to buy the cute one that's pink. Just saying, I'm not, if you want a pink drill, go get one, but I'm not going to buy one. So it's up to the drill manufacturer to decide and know which one of these designs between these two extremes am I likely to pick up and spend. And the more people they can identify their DYI guys, weekend warriors of trying to do this with limited skills, great aspirations, limited skills, the more drills they will sell. Because before I walk into the store, I can have an opportunity to understand and sort through this mix and know, hey, that one's mine. You know what? It's got a good size grip. I've got a fairly large hand. You know what? That one's a little rugged. God, I want a rugged drill, right? I'm not worried about breaking a nail on it. You know what? I like this one because it's got attachments. I like attachments. And it's right at the right price point. It's not $25. It's not $400. It's right at the price point I want. That's the job of the product manager. That's the job of the product marketer. And it translates 100%, I believe, into software, enterprise software, SaaS software. because. Our buyers and our users are going through the same cycle of analysis. Well, and with that, I'm kind of curious, has this assessment on how to launch a product? Actually, before that, what is the product launch in step by step by step? So I'm probably not the best person to answer that because I have a perspective on what product launch should be, what I've seen as best practice, and it may differ from what is common practice, if that makes sense. Tell us what you've ex- what you've so, seen. So common practice is, and it's changing. It is, we are, I think, at an inflection point. The people are seeing that more things need to be done. To, things need to be done. To. Common practice is, in many instances, and companies still do this, although it's shrinking, that launch is an event. We built something. We need to get the word out. We collect our messaging and we push the launch out. We notify, we sell the product. And I don't mean in a direct sales way, but we sell it in a messaging way. And after that, what we will do is figure out how many moderately qualified leads we get. A more best practice is making the launch. And we're all talking about bringing all of these activities. Common term is shift left, bringing all these activities closer in to the conception of the idea of the product. So if we're doing go to market, along with answering the heuristics of why are we building this, what problem we're solving, is it urgent, pervasive, and there's a willingness to pay, and we're answering the question, how are we going to offer this, or I'll put the air quotes around, the sell it, then the launch falls out of that, and it becomes less of an event and more of a contributing factor to the product lifecycle. And best practice would say we should have an understanding, and we would have an understanding, that the launch has certain inputs, it has certain outputs, and it has certain measurements we're looking for, depending upon what the company wants to achieve. We want to provide a way to drive retention or reduce churn for our existing customers. We're going to launch a capability that allows our users to have more support, more self-service. Metrics on that start from the obvious ones over some time frame. Does do we reduce the churn? And there are other leading metrics that we would pay to and look at to determine whether or not we met that success. We want to create a product that drives new logo growth. And so we would set a number of metrics over some period of time. How many new logos did we get? And then what are the leading indicators for that? Well, it might be MQL. It might be qualified leads accepted by sales. It might be uh, trials that spin from that and then conversion from trials. And so the definition of what a launch is should be rotating around what our business objectives are and what our strategy is, the specifics of what we're after, the mechanics 
are obviously collecting messaging, collecting positioning, doing competitive analysis, getting those things and collecting those things into sales readiness materials, prospect and potential readiness materials, and then providing an avenue to distribute those things, whether it's an event or part of a distribution capability we have because we have a very sophisticated presence, we can leverage multi-channel activities. Okay. So with all this, has this changed it all over the life of Silicon Valley? Has it always been this way? No, no. I think there's awareness because we talked about some of the dynamics going on and the common thing that we hear about, and most people are keenly aware of this, is that power has shifted to the buyer. Buyer centricity is sort of the watchword of the day or customer centricity or customer experience. And so when companies these days are bringing new products to market, those elements very much in play. There are elements in play because we understand that sales-led motion by themselves are not as effective as they once were. They're understood because, as I mentioned before, lots of choice and a lot of options out there for companies, for consumer of products, B2B consumer of products, users, buyers, to make different choices. The example of the 70-plus different CRM systems or the thousands of MarTech tools sitting inside of the stack, that those notions now have to play out in a very different way. And they have to play out in a way that's very specific to who is our ultimate buyer and where are they in a cycle that they would purchase and how are they best capable and along that journey that they're on, capable of extracting and using our product and getting awareness of it and having successful use. And then users as well, if they're different, of how would they best interact with our capability? And then how do we build solutions that reduce any kind of friction, any kind of impediment to them accepting the offer to use our product and then converting, whether it be a credit card swipe or a generation of a PO or whatever it takes to make the transaction complete. Okay, so product is launched, it's out on the market. How does it scale? You mean how does the product scale or how does the business resulting from the launch scale? Let's do both. Okay. Why not? I like the term rinse and repeat. If we're talking about a launch as part of this life cycle, it is constantly being iterative and going back. That's why the event construct of a launch is not as effective as it once was. I'm not sure it ever really was, but I think post-pandemic, we realize that there's some missing pieces. So the idea of iterating and constantly coming back and reevaluating what did we learn what did we get in terms of input? What is the data telling us? What insights do we have? And how do we then make the necessary changes if they're significant or incremental? It doesn't matter. And so there's this plan, do, act cycle, if you will, to borrow from that sort of QA or quality sort of assessment or Six Sigma idea that applies here directly. We plan something, we do something, we adjust, we act, we make adjustments, and then we make the changes based on the input that we've got, and we plan something else that's connected to it. So it's a series of circles that are concentric and connected that lead us along the path to success or to scale. And at each one of those stages, if we're being honest about what we're seeing and we're letting ourselves be in learning mode as opposed to resisting information or resisting learning, it will tell us, do we have the right people in place? Do we have the right skill sets in place? Is it time to add more in this 
name names of departments. It's time to add more resources to selling and less to marketing based on the fact that we need to aggressively go hand in hand with clients, potential clients or buyers and engage in them in a way that's different. We don't need any more leads in the funnel. We need to harvest the leads that we have. Do we have effectiveness of sales because we can examine the flow through of the buying cycle and the selling cycle and know we're losing too many deals at this point in the funnel, it's engagement. Our salespeople are not presenting the right solution. Our salespeople are demoing too early. Our salespeople are selling on price as opposed to value. All of those things are right in front of us. We just need to be open enough and have the right mindset to see that data. We have to have the discipline to collect the data and then see the data and lean into what it's providing for us. I had a client meeting yesterday, we'll not name the company, and we were talking about the abilities that they had learned. And they were doing some really great stuff around this actual practice, leaning into the notion of win-loss and conversion. And they came back and they said, we have done some analysis and we found out that our average conversion rate is, I think it's 55%. And when we did a breakdown, they have a number of products in the portfolio. But breakdown of the products, we found that some were above it. And we started circling on those that were way below it. The one that we zeroed in on had a, a conversion rate of something like 28%, significantly below our own company average. I said, what did you learn? I said, well, we interviewed clients. We inter- and check that. We interviewed sales account teams. We looked at the data. We looked at all the things we're extracting from our CRM system, among other things. And we found out that positioning of the, this particular product by salespeople was a lean in on price, not a lean in on value. And it was literally disrupting the sales side. Customers trying to solve a massive problem. And for whatever reason, could be product complexity, could be any number of things. The dialogue that picks up way early is about price. And it was causing the customer to walk away from the deal because I'm now superimposing what the impression would be. If this thing is really that good, why is it so cheap? Right. That's the mindset that many of us have. If you go into the store and you look at two items or three and one is super expensive and the other one is super cheap, typically most of us don't pick up the cheapest thing that's there. We may not buy the most expensive item, all assuming all things are equal. So pricing too low is a negative in that case. They said, we had this confirmed from a third party report we had that we were leaving money on the table. So what's the fix here? Well, two parts. You could raise prices and that could solve the problem. But I think more important to them in terms of continuing the cycle and getting scale and doing what's most important to the business, which is raising that conversion rate and also reducing customer acquisition cost or CAC would be training the sales force on how to sell this more complicated product using the value principles that we're talking. See, I thought you were going to say the price was too high and that's what scared everyone off, not the price was too low. I Yeah, that was their tale and their fine. And I was sitting back listening to this going because I was leaning into the same ideas, probably prices. So I'll tell you this from experimenting with this and doing a large a number, a significant number of win-loss analysis. We call it buyer insights. Rarely, as we have done hundreds of these over the years, do we find that customers think a price is too high. We've interviewed customers post-buy. We've interviewed people who elected a different solution for some of our clients. In most instances, price is not the deciding factor. Now, there's 
companies out there and research companies out there much bigger than us and much more prolific than us in the space have done this in multiple different ways. But I find just from our little experience, our little corner cohort of the world, that price is usually third or fourth on the list in terms of making a business to business solution about product or solution. I'm curious, do you remember the ones above that? If not, we'll go on right to the next question. Above which ones? You above? said number three or four. So I'm curious what's one. Oh, two, typical. Three? Oh, that's a good question. So what I'm relying on is memory. Sometimes it's product fit. In other words, I've got five options and this one's a stretch for us. It could be too complicated. That's often the times. So it starts back. It all goes back to this question, this pivotal question is about product lifecycle. Are we building for the right user? We can often build too much functionality into a solution. And if we build too much functionality in, the buyer and the user will look at it and go, too much lift, too much pain. What was your next question? All right. <laughs> next question there. Scale in the product. What happens if the product's fizzled out? Is there any way to relaunch some hype, relaunch excitement, relaunch a product? Or if it's fizzled out, it's fizzled out. So embedded in that question, I hear two things, and I would like to talk about what I think you're asking first, which is about re-messaging, repositioning from the outbound activity, the marketing and selling activity. If I, if the I way you phrased it is exactly what I was... <laughs> I should have you come write these questions out beforehand, make me sound smarter. So I have a story I'll share. My first job in product management, and I didn't come into this as a kid. I'd been in the industry for a while. Nobody wanted me to make this change. The CEO backed me because he liked me and he respected my, he called it my courage. And I got handed the product that was a dog. Okay? It hadn't generated, a, it was a flat line on revenue, it hadn't generated any growth in probably three years. The sales force wasn't offering it anymore. Now I came from sales and I kind of looked at product that I didn't try and sell this product when I was selling because I knew I couldn't make my quota off of it. And I took it on to, and said to myself and committed to the CEO, I'm going to show you them a good fit for this job. And because I'm going to turn this around. And I did something that came natural to me. I went out and talked to all of the existing customers on it. And I started just probing, not trying to sell them on the product. Just how do you use it? Where do you find it powerful? Where are the gaps? If you were going to use more of it, what would have to be here in order for you to look for you to use this product more? Or the gap that you're talking about, if there were a way to do that, would you use it with more yeah, we'd roll it out to more people. And I took all of that information. I went and sat with somebody that was, today I'll call them a mentor. They were just a really smart technologist. Just They were Stanford grad, a PhD from Stanford, a very approachable person. And he and I sat together, me on the messaging side, the marketing messaging side, him on the technology side. And we started figuring out how to close the gaps, just not completely all at once, just bring the gaps closer together. We added some simple things in terms of capabilities, and we added some I'll call it wow factor stuff. And we relaunched it and we got uptake. So my short answer, that's not really a short answer, but my answer to that question is yes. If we understand the product, we understand the space that it's in, we understand the buyers and what they're looking for, and, we, and we're willing to hear the negatives about the product. We're willing to take those and digest them. Easy for me to do at that point. The product was a dog. There was no downside. It couldn't get any worse. And two, it wasn't mine. I didn't own it. I got it handed to me. My risk factor was if this is really a dog with no escape, no upside at all, I get to walk in there and say, guys, we need to shut this thing down. 
let me go either back to my old job or let me find something else to work on. So clearly I could be courageous in that vein. So I didn't have any skin in the game from a historical perspective. I had all the skin in the game going forward versus someone who had that had been their quote unquote baby. They created the product or they'd sat with it for five years. Sometimes those things are difficult to do. There's a colleague that I work with a lot and he has a phrase. He says, love the problem, not the product. That's a message and a piece of advice to product managers who's been sitting on a product for a while. Don't fall in love with your product. Fall in love with solving the problem, which then means you're having a mindset that you're willing to look at the shortcomings of what you've created and realize that you can learn from that and take it to the next level. So that's kind of the answer back to if a product fizzles out, it usually has some way forward. It may not turn into some massive seller. It may not turn into a number one product in its space, but it means you can get incremental increase in volume and revenue. And most importantly, because the development has sunk cost by that time, those are profitable things. So the product that I was talking about after 12 months or so showed an uptick of 10 or 11% in revenue, that was pure profit. There wasn't any massive engineering that had to go into that to get us there. These were slightly well-positioned at all. Curious there, because, I mean, it sounds like you just repositioned your messaging and that was enough to then just bump it up. So there were two things. We did reposition the messaging because we understood from the investigation of talking to users and buyers, because this always happens. We build this great thing, whatever it is, and the market takes it. And they never, almost never, I won't say never, they almost never use it the way we think it was going to be used. We're just not that smart. They figure out a way that this solves a value proposition for them or a value for them that is much greater than what we anticipated. That's a good thing. And if we're willing to listen to what they're saying and listen to and watch what they're doing, then we can begin to discover what the potential is for the product. It goes far beyond what we thought it was most of the time. And I could point to any physical product, the one that's in your possession, the one that's in mine, that when this first came out some 35 years ago, it was to make a phone call. Phone calling is incidental to this, right? Yeah. There's a phone in here, but that's not the reason I bought it, right? That came out for whatever reason, potentially entertainment, because we wanted to download movies. That's why I bought mine. I wanted to download movies because I was on a plane all the time and I wanted to watch uninterrupted what I wanted to watch. So for our audience listening to this, Mike is pointing to my iPad that's in front of me. And I bought this just so I could go on Clubhouse because I got it during the pandemic when they didn't have the Android app out yet. And now I read books on it. <laughs> I, I, that's my exactly my point. And this, I was also, sorry for those who were just listening, I was also holding up my phone, which happens to be a Pixel 7. I bought it three days ago. I'm an Android guy. We got the Pixel 7 as well. Michelle and I both got ours for, okay. for Christmas. I think it's a cool yeah. phone. Yeah. And I started using these products. I can remember dating people back when they were not smartphones. That was to make phone calls. It was convenience. And today, that's like the least common that's the least valuable thing this phone does to me. So going back to, to the questions, one that I'm really curious of, well, when people come to you, kind of what are the problems that they're asking to solve? So th this is a really intriguing thing, and I should probably sit down and document some of these things that I've seen, these entry points. We'll call them discovery calls. That's what we call them. We sit down and talk to people. Hey, I heard you do this work technology-oriented, product management, product marketing. Sure, tell me what's going on. And they start, it's, they start describing what I'll call symptoms. And they don't call us when things are going well, obviously, right? They call us when 
products not moving as expected. And not that, hey, we have a slow moving product. We have actually have five slow moving products and we built them all what we believe is according to what we learned and what we understood, but none of them are going forward. There are often times when we get calls when a new leadership comes in and they look around and go, this isn't the A plus team I expected. And I need to have somebody help me sort out who are potential become A players and who are not. Do we have processes that are inhibiting people or not? Do we have culture that's inhibiting? And so we will go in and do an assessment. You've got one of the things we we pre-agreed to was talking about the idea of assessment. And so it comes in two different flavors to me. It's assessing the technology. We don't go down in three different flavors. We don't go down and assess the technology stack. We have a great partner. We've been doing business for 10 years, referred a lot of business back and forth. It does a deep dive into the tech stack, but it does involve looking at the product, the solution or the offer and who's buying it kind of pricing is there, are they paying for it? How much do you discount? How much of it, percentage of it, does it represent to revenue, et cetera? That's a product assessment. And then the third element, and this is the place where I, I am most attracted and I find the most empowering and the most rewarding and the most value to the ultimate client is the people assessment. Do we have the right people, processes, and are we supporting them in the right way to make them efficient? This is a people business are not. And so when we look at these things, most of the time, people, our potential clients, our new clients are coming and talking about, are they organized the right way? Are their work streams set up the right way? Are we doing the right things to engage them so they can be successful? Okay. So your consultant's firm, tell us a little bit about that and kind of tell us over the years, because it's had, you've had several employees, you've been a team of one. Why this life cycle? So full transparency, there was a time that I, like a lot of people, were obsessed with growth. Hey, Silicon Valley, we've never heard this. I know. And so I, I'm a product of Silicon Valley. You get obsessed with growth. And I have had as many as 10 consultants around, some employees, some not. And the work was becoming less rewarding for me because it was more about doing the things that the business needed and more about doing the work. And as you can tell from the conversation, I still care about this stuff. I enjoy getting my hands dirty with. So resetting, shrinking down, getting focused, working with a smaller set of clients without the obsession on growth has allowed me to be more free in who I work with, why I work with them, and then to be more on board, have skin in a game about their outcome, right? Less about blocking and tackling the engagement, making sure we're hitting our milestones. Do we have too much resources in there? Do we not have enough? Do we help them make this breakthrough or do we just stick with the statement of work and make sure we tick it off to the end? So I'm able to be a lot more free about how I approach what I do now. And it's been a lot more rewarding and may not have a massive exit in the next three to five years. That's okay. But you're because not I'm backed, not, are you? What's it? No, I'm not. And that's the other part is I haven't taken no money from anyone. So I don't feel. And at one point in time, a few years ago, there were offers coming in to, to put money into the company. And I considered it and decided that's going to change me. I'm already overly obsessed with growth. I don't need to end up on a steroid trip about being overly and have the pressure of having somebody's money in the company. And so as a result, We've kind of stayed in this lane, so to speak, to pick and choose the things we want to do and who we want to do it with. All right. So before wrapping up, we got a couple more minutes left, but just to summarize, what are some of the best product lifecycle, best product management, best product marketing, best practices for technology companies? 
I mean, they've been around for a long time and most people in this space will know them. I'm a big proponent of lean, especially for early stage companies so that you can quickly do exactly what I described at the beginning, engage the layers of this life cycle and iterate and not because no one knows all of the answers at the outset and it's a learning process. And what we find ourselves doing is doing steps in the process, validating those steps, learning something and coming back to it. And then better, the next cycle is better. So I'm a big proponent of accepting that as a way and a path forward. Another one that if you're trying to scale, and there's a lot of critics out there, I'm a proponent of scaled agile framework. And I know it has its detractors and it has its proponents and its apologists. I like it for the fact that it simplifies and straightens out what the roles are and what the mission is. There are a lot of issues or a lot of, I'd say, things about it that may not be as efficient, but it has some very specific things about aligning multiple departments in a moderate size to large company around the notion of what are we going to do? And most importantly, what are we not going to do? And then making sure that people remain accountable in that process. One more thing that I like is using some of the principles that are now talked about. And I don't, product-led growth is an obvious one. We hear a lot about that because it takes us and shifts us now to thinking about not the tech, so to speak, how many really cool algorithms we can put into the body of the product, how, whether we're using any particular method of development, but now it's what does the user and or buyer have to do to get value out of our solution? How quickly do we allow them to do that? So it's about removing friction. It's about increasing the usability of the product. Those are practice principles that I think are viable. They are, I think they're well understood and out in the market and being used today. Fantastic. And Mike, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Probably the website, which is egrissolutions.net. And find me on LinkedIn. I'm Michael Smart on LinkedIn. And there are probably a couple of them that show up, but I don't think you'll have a problem missing me because the profile kind of explodes it. I can't remember. Unfortunately, I can't remember my, my LinkedIn link at this point in time. Not a problem. So for our audience out there, we're going to have the link for the website and his LinkedIn in the show notes. So check us out on the SiliconValleyPodcast.com where I'll have this interview and all our past ones. And check out everything to come on the website as well. And for audience out there, what I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and secondaries. Connect with me on LinkedIn or through the website. Let's have a conversation. And with that, Michael, I want to thank you for your time on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.